Now, the U.S. spends more on health care per person than any other wealthy nation and has the most advanced medical research. But the U.S. is far behind peer countries in life expectancy. American life expectancy peaked in 2014 at just under 79 years old and then started to decline even before the pandemic. The biggest killer? Chronic illness. It's the leading cause of death for Americans between 35 and 64 years old. In a quarter of U.S. counties, people in this age group are dying sooner than they were 40 years ago. The problem is much worse for poor Americans. We're talking about concerns about American life expectancy. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you seen this in your community, maybe in your own family? Have you dealt with the impact of chronic illness that uh, tragically takes lives before you would we would want them to, before we would expect them to? Join in with your thoughts, your possible solutions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dr. Patrick Remington is an emeritus professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Remington, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Remington, this idea came from a, a Washington Post analysis of data comparing the U.S. to the rest of the world. And I got to say, looking at the charts, it's it's stark, the difference between U.S. and peer countries. Uh, can you can you talk about uh, how we are comparing to uh, other nations around the world uh, negatively in this case? Well, I think every listener should take a look at that graph. It is stark. Uh, when I graduated uh, from medical school here at, in, in Madison, um, in 1981, uh, we were the middle of the pack in, among developed nations in life expectancy. And I always used to say that, you know, what, what are they doing in Japan or Sweden that allow uh, them to have longer, significantly longer life expectancies? Um, as you point out, a decade ago, the U.S. dropped to dead last in these rankings among the developed nations in the world. And since COVID, uh, it's been a precipitous decline. We are not just last in, in life expectancy. We are a, uh, a tremendous distance from the uh, the next country. We were hit hardest by COVID, uh, particularly because of the high prevalence of chronic diseases in, in this country. Not just uh, overweight and obesity, but other uh, uh, chronic illnesses. So yes, it is stark. And um, these statistics don't lie. These are real numbers. These are real lives being lost uh, at uh, younger ages. So um, it, it is really stark, as you point out. I think sometimes when we think of you know life expectancy in the United States, uh, people might think of that some of the headline things we read about, like uh, overdose deaths and uh, gun violence deaths, which are very serious problems. But uh, here it seems like the story is those chronic illnesses you're talking about. What are some of the conditions that are shortening our lives? Well, you're right. We, we shouldn't forget that uh, the tremendous impact that uh, uh, opioid, the opioid epidemic has had, particularly firearm violence um, uh, and suicide. These uh, causes of death uh, happen at younger ages. And so they have a bigger impact on life expectancy. But chronic illness begins at a quite a young age. We are seeing now adolescents and young adults with hypertension, with diabetes, and those uh, sort of early roots of chronic illness lead to serious medical complications uh, in, in midlife and 
uh, and early death. So yes, it's uh, it's a combination of deaths related to uh, obesity, related to poor nutrition and lack of physical activity, but also when you think about the contributing factors, um, uh, depression and not feeling well, not being economically secure, for example, leads to people not having good insurance, not having access to uh, state-of-the-art uh, medical care. So it's this complex web of chronic conditions, but upstream, these lifestyle factors and the root causes, really, which is the socioeconomic conditions that part of America suffers with, struggling to make ends meet. It's hard to live a healthy lifestyle. It's hard to get access to quality primary care. And that's where we see, it's in that population that we see the uh, shorter lives and poor health. Does that point you toward possible solutions, interventions? Can we target uh, better early primary care to some of the most at-risk groups? Well, we just have to look around the rest of the world to find one solution is universal access to health care. Um, the U.S. is unique in the world and in developed nations in, in not having universal access. Any young person, anybody listening to this uh, uh, show today who has tried to navigate the healthcare system will tell you that it's not built for primary care. It's not built for prevention. We tend to focus our resources on uh, intensive interventions for serious illness, really important, but we shouldn't do that at the expense of universally access accessible uh, primary care. And that system is broken and absolutely needs to be fixed. Talking to Dr. Patrick Remington, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health, talking to us about why the U.S. has the lowest life expectancy among wealthy countries around the world and why chronic illness is the leading cause of death for working age Americans, people 30 to 64 in particular in a recent study. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What do you see causing these problems? Do you see possible solutions? Do you have questions for our guest? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Farad. We're finding out why chronic illnesses are killing working-age Americans at a higher rate than any other wealthy country in the world. Our guest is Dr. Patrick Rubbington, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. Dr. Rubbington, I want to talk about the public health side of this. In that Washington Post series I mentioned, they compared... uh, basically some red state, blue state comparisons, choices made over the last few decades when it comes to investment in public health, uh, things like indoor smoking bans, other public health interventions. The supporters said, hey, this is going to make people healthier. Critics said, hey, this is nanny state, uh, the government interfering in personal choices, an unintentional experiment, basically. Have we learned anything from that? We certainly have. I I think... One of the dangers of a simple summary statistic like life expectancy for the U.S. is that it hides these differences. Um, research has shown that not all of America is uh, falling behind in life expectancy. And the communities that are most effective are the rural communities across the nation. Um, that was not the case uh, 40 years ago. Life expectancy in rural America was uh, actually a little better. 
And so we've seen that dramatic decline. And then in the southern and, uh, and uh, southeastern uh, communities in this country, they have struggled with life expectancy. And as you point out, cigarette smoking, although we've made tremendous progress, we're, we're down to about 15% of adult smoking, that rate is higher in those states. And they've been less progressive in uh, providing cessation services, but also really making non-smoking the norm uh, through uh, policy changes. So I, I recommend that people look at your own community. We, we at Wisconsin uh, developed the Wisconsin or the uh, county health rankings, and you can look and see where your community ranks within the state uh, with respect to uh, length and, and quality of life. And it varies depending on what part of the country you're looking at. Let's bring on a caller. Kay is with us in Madison. Kay, hello. Hi, uh, I'm so glad uh, that you're doing this topic. Um, I was doing polling around 2012 in a border state, but we did national polls. And I'm sorry, I was living in New York at that point. Um, and we did one for the American Cancer Society, which came up with that 70% of our medical costs are from the chronic conditions, diabetes, uh, hypertension, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I myself have had to basically cure myself of a very bad case of hypoglycemia from having been born premature by stretching and studying nutrition and the whole sugar issue drives me insane the amount of sugar products which then you can which i've heard of a study you can get addicted to that it it uh, so much sugar will overload your impulse control okay thanks a lot for the call a lot there dr remington let's stay with that idea of sugar i think sometimes people look at big nationwide health numbers and say, you know, this is individual choices. We should all individually cut back on sugar and avoid things. The other argument is maybe if this is affecting the whole country, we need to do something with our food supply, taxes on uh, junk food products, whatever. Where do you see the solutions? Well, it's important to uh, point out that it takes both. Um, Individuals need to exercise and, and be active and eat right. But that alone is not sufficient. Simply giving that advice to a patient or to, a, to an individual uh, is not going to help when the foods that are available and that are heavily marketed and that are less expensive uh, are by their own nature unhealthy. Uh, and we know certainly the promotion of sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, right now, you can go into uh, most restaurants and not just get a 16 ounce or not even a 24 ounce, but your cup is bottomless. And most people, when I watch particularly young people in restaurants, they're not going for diet sodas, they're going or water, they're going for sugar sweetened beverages and you know, hundreds, if not thousands of calories consumed um, with of, of simple sugars. So that's just one part of kind of the environment in which we live, which makes healthy eating hard. So we need to not only, you know, advise people to eat better, eat less uh, good food, um, uh, uh, less More food, good food. But better food. Thanks again for that call, Kate. Dr. Remington, I want to get into uh, the social determinants of health is the, the phrase people use a lot. Another uh, statistic that's been uh, widening here is the gap between the outcomes of the health outcomes for poor Americans versus rich Americans. However you slice it, it seems like that gap is getting bigger and bigger over the last few decades. What is driving that? Well, the gap is getting bigger. Again, there are two Americas. There are those who are economically flourishing, 
tend to have college degrees. If we segment that population and look at life expectancy, their life expectancy is going up. It's not suffering like the other America, those that are really struggling to make ends meet tend to have low-wage jobs, debt from student loan or medical expenses. They've not benefited from the economic prosperity that the uh, uh, wealthy Americans have. And those that population is suffering the most. That population has shorter lives, poor quality health, and, and it's really a solution that won't come simply from giving them advice, telling them to eat better and exercise. It comes from how we structure our society and look at this fact that we have uh, uh, Americans who are flourishing, but we have a, a maybe a majority of Americans are struggling to make ends meet. And for those people, um, th they will see more chronic illness. They will see uh, issues of, of mental health challenges and and struggle with chronic diseases that are related to obesity and and the like. So I, I think we have to look upstream to the, as you point out, the social determinants and think about if we can make those hard decisions uh, to help people who are struggling to make ends meet. Dr. Remington, we'll leave it there. Thanks, as always, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rob. That's Dr. Patrick Remington, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. He talked to us about why chronic illnesses are killing working-age Americans at a higher rate than any other wealthy country in the world. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You may have noticed the temperature drop quite a bit from yesterday to today, and maybe you're warming yourself up with a nice cup of tea. Tea's got a rich history around the world, including China, India, Great Britain, and more. It's the second most consumed beverage worldwide after, you know, water. Here in the U.S., we tend to drink more of the coffee or the soda. We might want a little advice if we want to make the perfect cup of tea. Well, it's tea time here on Food Friday. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite kind of tea? Do you want some advice? Do you have a nagging question where you think you're doing it wrong? Our guest can help you do it right. 800-642-1234 is the number. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Holly Gale is the owner of Sencha Tea Bar in Madison. Holly, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. It can be overwhelming, I think, when we go to the tea aisle or a tea store. There's so many different varieties. First of all, at the basic level, you know, there's the black tea, green tea, white tea, and so on. What, are, what makes them different from one another? That's such a good question. I think lots of people ask that question. It's all about how that tea is processed and the oxidation process. So we start off at the purest part of tea or like, you know, you just pick those leaves and you let them dry a little bit and that would be white tea. So you're going to get the least amount of caffeine but the most amount of antioxidants. Next step on that is green tea. Again, a little more processing. They actually do it very different in Japan and China. In China, they dry roast tea and Japan. They steam their tea to stop oxidation. Next, we have our in-between green and black tea, which is oolong, which mm -hmm. is my favorite type of tea, hand-rolled. It's amazing. You can steep it many times. And then onto black tea, which most people are the most familiar with. And this tea is phenomenal. Full-bodied, lots of caffeine, still retains the antioxidants. And then right after black tea is puer, which is fermented black tea. I've never heard of that. Fermented black tea. What is that? Does it taste fermenty? It kind of tastes <laughs> fermenty. Um, but 
what I always like to say is that it's full of probiotics. So you, the taste, it, you'll get used to the taste of pu'er, <clears throat> but the probiotics benefit really outweighs maybe the not as amazing taste of pu'er. Now there's this whole other category of what we call tea. Here's some in my mug right now. It's ginger tea. There's not actually any tea, as in the stuff that comes from the tea plant in it. Are we cool still calling that tea? We are absolutely cool on still calling that tea, but you're exactly right. Um, Tea is from the Camellia sinensis plant. The ginger that you are drinking right now is considered a tisan or as herbal tea. Now, I have done the thing where you buy loose tea, actual tea sometimes, or herbal teas or other, and use the tea strainer or those uh, bags you can fill yourself. Like, what is the difference in experience between I'm buying a package of tea bags versus, you know, packing my own? Oh, that's such a great question. Loose leaf tea is going to retain more of its... um, more of what it is naturally. It's going to look like a leaf still. It's going to unfurl that way. You're going to get more of that, a um, little bit more of that natural flavor. A tea bag is going to be a little more processed. It's going to be chopped up a little bit more. Um, I will say, though, be it loose leaf tea or tea in a tea bag, um, both of them make an amazing cup. Now, let's talk about how hot the water is supposed to be. I've heard very definitive answers from different people. They're not always the same answers. And I think it may depend on the kind of tea too. So full boil, almost a boil. Like when do we, how do, how much, how hot do we heat our tea? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So black tea, pu'er and herbal teas, Mm -hmm. boiling is just fine. You are, you want to pull as much of that flavor out of there. And White teas, green teas require um, not boiling, so we're really thinking like 180 degrees to 190 degrees Fahrenheit is best, but you will, no one will get hurt if you boil <laughs> the water for your green tea. All that will happen is that your, the tannins of the tea will come out a little bit more and your tea will just be a little more bitter. Now, steeping times. How long? Now, I mean, right now, my ginger tea bag is still in there. It stays in there for the whole show. Uh, But they're like black tea. Well, that can be a little much if you just leave it sitting in there. That's exactly right. And that's because it's made with Camellia sinensis. So it is going to it's going to like continue to release the tannins and everything that's in that black tea, which will get you a bitter cup of tea. Your ginger tea, there's really nothing in there that's going to keep releasing and make the bitterness come out. But steeping time is is important when you when you're really looking to master making a cup of tea. How I feel about tea is I just really want everyone to drink it. <laughs> so it is up to you on finding that great balance on your steeping time. Now, some uh, places around the world, some people will say, no, you don't steep it in the cup. You steep it in the pot. Are there times, I mean, I love the presentation, right, at a, a restaurant where they steep the tea in the pot and I pour it. Does it make a difference for the flavor? It does make a difference. And that's just because you're giving enough um you're making sure that the tea is fully in, involved in that water. It's fully immersed in the water, which will get all of the flavor out of that. But when you're looking to just drink a cup of tea, tea bag, tea ball, however you want to steep it and works best for you is the best way to drink a cup of tea. It's Food Friday, and we're talking about tea with Holly Gale, owner of Sencha Tea Bar in Madison. If you have a tea question or a tea favorite, join in at 800-642-1234. All right, let's get into flavored teas now. Now, I know there are some coffee people who are like, 
no, you don't get a flavored coffee. And some people love it, and that's fine either way. Can you talk about the world of, uh, and sticking with actual like tea here, black tea, green tea, uh, how does flavor get added? Uh, is it good? Yeah, flavor gets added in a couple different ways. Sometimes you'll have a green tea that has dried raspberries in it. So that would be considered a raspberry green tea. Um, Sometimes more, not as natural flavors, but more like extracts will be added to a tea. And that's when you're going to get maybe that more bold flavor is when extracts are added to tea. Very similar to flavored coffee. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Stephanie is with us in Milwaukee. Stephanie, hi. Hi. Um, I had a question about, like, making, like, tea blends. There's this one tea I really like. It's like a green tea, and it has, like, rose petals, and it's really good. It's a little bit pricey, though, so I was wondering if the speaker has any, like, comments or quick tips about uh, making, like, your own tea blends. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun, actually, Stephanie. Thanks for the call. Holly, advice. Yeah, that sounds like lots of fun. I would say first and foremost, you're going to want to source your ingredients. So when you're saying these rose petals or rose buds, you're going to want to make sure that these roses are food grade and that they are safe for consumption. And then you're going to grab the kind of tea you like um, and what kind of green tea you like. So putting those together, putting them in a bag and really finding that balance of how much rose to green tea is your preference. Stephanie, thanks a lot for the call. Hope that helps. Let's talk a little bit about iced tea. I make a lot of iced tea at home. Sometimes my wife says it's not strong enough. Uh, what are, are, are there secrets to making good iced tea? A lot of like even cafes don't do iced tea because it's kind of a pain, I guess. Yes. Um, I think it's just more of a, a, a learned yeah, everything just needs to be learned. Um, there's a couple really easy ways that I wanted to share with all of our re- all of our listeners today on making iced tea. Number one easiest way is sun tea. You grab a clean, sanitized jar, container. Glass is usually best. You pop the tea bags in there or the loose leaf tea, and this is able to sit in that container for about four hours in the sun, strain out those leaves, and now you have the most amazing iced tea that you really didn't do a whole lot for. Hmm. Pop it in the fridge. It's ready to drink. The next even easier way of doing this, because you really don't have to think about it that much, is cold brewing your tea at home. So you're going to grab another receptacle, you know, a glass receptacle, pop the amount of tea you want in there, the amount of water, and you're going to put that in your fridge um, anywhere from like seven to nine hours. And then the next, so if you do this before you go to bed, you just take those tea leaves out when you wake up in the morning. Bam, you have the most amazing iced tea for the rest of the day. If I'm really lazy, can I do that fridge tea version with tea bags? You can absolutely do that with tea bags. You can do Mm. this with any tea. You just always want to make sure you have a way to separate the tea leaves from the water. Let's go back to our callers now. Connor is with us in Madison. Connor, hi. Hi, Holly. Uh, Hi, listeners. I just wanted to say that I went to Central last night and had the royalty latte. And it's literally the best thing I've ever had. If you haven't been to Sencha, you've got to, got to go. It's so good. The people are amazing. Holly, I love you so much. You guys have a great rest of your day. Connor, thanks for the call. I don't know if you planted a call or Holly. I did not. You look look surprised, though. It's okay. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about that, making a latte out of tea. Yes. So, um... At Sencha, we like to use plant-based milks to make it inclusive to most everybody. But to make a latte out of tea, add any milk of your preference. Um, We're in Wisconsin, so definitely dairy milk is Mm -hmm. always amazing. And it's simple. You just make tea, add the amount of milk you want. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Not rocket science there. (laughs) Connor, thanks for the suggestion. Uh, Pat is with us now in Green Bay. Pat, hello. 
Greetings and salutations. What did you want uh, to bring up, Pat? <clears throat> okay, I have made, I've, I've dabbled back and forth making kombucha. And as we know, it's fermented tea. Now, I've, I've had it where it was made from a raspberry leaf tea. But when I tried using my own raspberry leaves, well, it's kind of nasty. <laughs> what am I, any clue of what I may be doing wrong? Thanks for the call. Do you do? Uh, do you make kombucha? Honey? Oh, unfortunately, I don't do kombucha. Mm-hmm. The kombucha that we sell actually comes from a local woman, a rude brew um, kombucha in Madison, and so I really leave that up to her. So I wish I knew what was going on with your raspberry leaf. <laughs> um, but if you ever do find out, you should hit up our website and let me know. Pat, good luck. I hope you you get to the bottom of that. Um, What are some of the uh, blends or varieties, Holly, that that you've gotten excited about in recent years when it comes to tea? Oh, my goodness. Um, Ones I've gotten really excited about are using... Things that are going to help with our immune system and boosting our immune system. So I really like to play around with like elderberry. I like um, adding things that that just feel right, like cornflour. So I think making my own blends out of certain botanicals has been really exciting. Now, over the years I've encountered, you know, I'm not like a tea expert or anything, but I've encountered some more adventurous teas, like what is it, the Lapsang Souchong? Oh, it's yes. a very distinctive flavor, and I think I got to where I liked it. Do you have anything that's like, hey, we want to try something new, and it's kind of pushing the boundaries of our tea flavor? Oh, you know, it really all depends on someone's tea journey because for someone, getting an oolong tea might be pushing that boundary of, I've never had this. And with oolong tea, the second steeping is the best steeping, which not everybody um, knows about. Or, um, But Lapsang is a really great example that is a smoked tea that I actually really like smoky. to use in dry rubbing when I'm grilling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. That sounds awesome. Well, Holly, I will leave it there. Thank you so much for all the tea advice. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's Holly Gale, owner of Sencha Tea Bar in Madison. We've been talking about how to make tea for all occasions. Are they looking to perfect a classic or jazz it up with some fun flavor combinations? Keep sharing your favorites on the Ideas Network Facebook page.